You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. As part of our sleep series, I have again a returning guest, Dr. Stephen Park. Uh, we spoke a number of months ago uh, when I knew a lot less about uh, you know how to sleep properly, and I got his book, uh, which is called Sleep Interrupted. A uh, physician reveals why. Well, a physician reveals the number one reason why many of us are sick and tired. By Stephen Y. Park, MD. Uh, it was great to talk to him last time. The book's got a lot of insights into what could be going on with people not sleeping well and why they're tired, and I wanted to have him back. So, uh, Steve, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you know, I know you, you're probably tired of telling it, but what, what got you into caring about sleep, you know, as a, as a doctor, if you don't mind retelling what happened? Well, I think um, there are two major reasons. Number one, I started off as an ear, nose, and throat physician and surgeon, and I noticed that a lot of the problems that people are having with ear, nose, and throat issues were actually related to sleep breathing problems. So for example, people who snored a lot also had sinus problems or throat problems. And I figured out that it was all connected, especially with the acid reflux and weight gain and you know, sinus infections, ear infections. And so when I looked for and treated sleep problems, these ENT problems got much better. Um, but the second aspect is that on a personal level, um, I've always you know, been kind of sleepy and tired and um, I had trouble getting up in the mornings and I realized that I had this too. So this is a personal issue for myself as well. Hmm. Got it. Um, I've spoken to people that will talk about apnea, you know, when you stop breathing and they'll say, oh, CPAP's the gold standard. And then mm-hmm. some people will say, oh, an oral appliance that advances your lower jaws, you know, that's, that's better to do. And, but I wanted to get more into detail. It sounds to me from reading your book and from talking to you that you're more about nuance and about finding every possible way to help someone. So tell me, what, what are your thoughts around the real reason that people wake up tired a lot and have sleeping problems or they snore? Like what are a lot of the possible reasons for it? Well, if you look at the textbooks, there's probably about two dozen reasons why people snore and have sleep apnea. The most common explanation is that um, if you gain weight, if you get heavy, then you snore more and have more sleep apnea. But the basic um, fundamental reason why I wrote my book was, was not to kind of promote the traditional 
models of sleep apnea, but to show people that fundamentally modern humans are all susceptible to breathing problems, and that's because we can talk. Uh, so it's a little bit of a side note on that. Um, because we can talk, our soft tissues in our throat can become very floppy um, because um, complex speech and language, for, for that to happen, you need a floppy tissue, like the tongue and soft palate and epiglottis, it can, it can kind of vibrate. Um, and that's why with speech and language development, uh, modern human beings are, are all susceptible to breathing problems and swallowing problems. Um, so it was a trade-off. We developed speech and language, but then we also became more susceptible to snoring and sleeping problems and breathing issues. Okay. So um, I've noticed, you know, for instance, I've snored for a long time and mm -hmm. by doing various things to improve my health, you know, diet, losing weight, et cetera, you know, my snoring is reduced, but not totally mm -hmm. gone away. Mm -hmm. What's, um, typically what the patients you see, how do they present when they come in? What are they telling you is going on? And how do you go about figuring out like the root cause of their problem? Well, most of the time they come to see me because their spouses or bed partners are elbowing them at night to turn over because they're snoring. Or they have other symptoms like fatigue, headaches, um, anxiety, digestive issues, um, a number of different things that, that result from not sleeping well. Um, so they're coming from different, multiple different sources. Um, but the basic fundamental reason why people have these issues, and everyone is on this continuum where you can have simple snoring, which is fine. It doesn't cause any health problems. But then as you go up the continuum, then you start to go into sleep apnea. And then there you, there you get higher risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, heart attack, stroke, cancer, car accidents. So a number of different things that can happen as a result of not treating the sleep apnea. Um, but there's also this misconception that you have to be overweight, male, with a big neck to, to have sleep apnea, but that's totally not true. We know that even young, thin women that don't snore can still have severe sleep apnea. So um, that, that's a challenge. Um, when you say sleep apnea, it just kind of denotes this you know, stereotypical um, um, thought that you, know, you have to be a certain mode or, or, or sex or weight to have it, but almost anyone, if you're a modern human being, can have it. Yeah, that's true. Like, you know, when you talk about even snoring, you know, you assume it's like some big old fat guy with a beard, you know, like in the movies, they show you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he'll snore and his beard lifts up as he snores and it comes down. And culturally, I don't think snoring is taken seriously. I mean, it's an annoyance. And it's, mm -hmm. I know emotionally, the snorer feels bad because they don't know they're doing it typically. And then the people that or in the bed with them, the person that's in the bed with them is suffering and they can't sleep with them sometimes in the bed or they're pissed off at them. And the person, you know, they don't mean to do it. So it's like a, it's a whole psychological thing. Yeah, it's, it can be very um, emotionally, psychologically, very distressing for both the snorer and the snoree. Well, so in, in your experience, um, is snoring enough to cause health problems or does it have to progress to apnea to cause health problems? Like, is snoring no big deal? Or is yeah, it what they've deal? shown is that snoring by itself without sleep apnea on a sleep study is still linked with a higher risk of stroke. Um, and so even if you don't have sleep apnea, a lot of people have major breathing problems. And that's, this is what I talk about in my book, uh, the section on upper airway resistance syndrome or UARS, where you stop breathing a lot, but it's not long enough to be called apneas. So I have a lot of healthy looking men and women who stop breathing, let's say 25 times an hour but their score in the sleep study is zero or very, very minimal. Um, and so, and, and you can have, like I said, you can have simple snoring without any consequences, but most people these days, if you snore regularly, 
it does lead to other medical consequences like fatigue or headaches or anxiety or digestive issues before the medical complications uh, take effect. Why do you think it leads to strange things to me, like digestive issues? I mean, headaches, maybe I can understand, but like what's the mechanism? So if someone snores, Mm -hmm. what is it doing to their sleep architecture and why does it cause all these strange problems? So when you're snoring, what what that means is that the soft tissues in your throat are caving in partially. You're not obstructed completely. So if you're snoring, you're still breathing, right? Uh, It's when you're not snoring that that may be a problem because you may not be breathing. But let's just say you snore a lot. What happens is that the, the soft tissues, especially the, the soft palate, it starts to narrow and then it starts to vibrate like a reed on a, on a clarinet reed or a woodwind instrument. Um, and then what happens is that the, the, the brain picks up the fact that you're about to stop breathing and it wakes you up from deep to light sleep. So even partial obstruction can lead to these subconscious arousals. So you, keep, you can't stay in deep sleep. You keep waking up from deep to light sleep. Um, so even though you think you're sleeping the whole night, it's, it's fragmented sleep. Now that leads to a, a, a physiologic consequence where um, the body thinks it's under attack all the time. So you go into the state of physiologic stress and that has a whole host of other you know, downstream effects um, where if your body's under stress, things just don't work well. So you don't digest food that well. Uh, your nervous system becomes on your edge, you're hypersensitive. Um, and your, um, your senses become more heightened. Um, you have more pain issues, um, anxiety, depression, those kind of symptoms, and hormonal imbalances too, because stress, physiologic stress, alters your reproductive and, and physiologic um, hormones, like even your thyroid hormones. Okay, so it makes sense. It leads to a whole cascade of hormonal issues, and the, the root of it is that you're stressing, your, your body is being stressed dozens of times an hour, possibly. So. You can't get deep sleep, for instance, or maybe even REM sleep. You can't get it because you're in and out, in and out, in and out. Exactly. Right. Your body's probably producing more cortisol and your whole, Mm -hmm. I guess it leads to like a whole hormonal cascade. You know, and if this happens to you every night for, you know, six to eight hours a night, that's Mm -hmm. very significant in terms of your physiology over time, Mm -hmm. really stressing it over and over and over and causing big changes. Right. And long-term stress leads to weight gain. Because physiologically, it promotes weight gain, increases hunger for unhealthy, sugary, fatty foods. Um, and also talking about hormonal imbalances or hormonal effects, there's one aspect of snoring and sleep apnea that, that's really interesting. Um, you know, when people say they wake up to go to the bathroom, um, you know, they blame it on, let's say, a large prostate or you have an irritable bladder or you drink too much water. But one of the most common consequences of snoring and sleep apnea is that you make more urine. Um, every time you stop breathing, even partially, you stretch your heart and your heart thinks that there's too much blood coming in. So it makes a hormone called atrial natriuretic peptide that goes to your kidneys to make you pee more than usual. So that's why when you wake up in the middle of the night, it's usually around the same time every night. Oh, why would it be around the same time, by the way? Uh, because let's say that you make a little, ec- more, little extra urine more than usual for the first you know, five or six hours. And then as your sleep um, cycles go up and down throughout the night, Around 3 a.m., that's when you start to go into the longest periods of REM sleep when you're dreaming. But that's when your muscles are most relaxed. Oh, so, so your the urge mo- to pee yeah. will be, you'll have a full bladder, and then your ability yeah. to stop pissing yourself is, is lowest. So your body will say, wake up, you better pee, otherwise you're going to you know, go all over the bed. Right. You wake up, and then you think you have to go to the bathroom, but usually it's not a lot of urine. 
oh, okay. I thought, so is, is there a difference in people that wake up and they do have to go a lot versus people that wake up and they think they have to go, but they don't? It's a big continuum <laughs> because um, you know, everyone's different. Let's say you have diabetes, so you're going to make more urine too. But most people who wake up multiple times to go to the bathroom, uh, it's, it's mostly due to the sleep breathing issue. And most of the time, for example, if let's say you go to the bathroom three or four times a night, and after you start CPAP, the night, nighttime urination goes away, or just, it gets more, more minimized down to like three to one. Okay, and the reason for that is, again, you're not making this, uh, I believe he called it a, I, I don't remember the name, but it was a yeah. peptide. Yeah, yeah ANP or atrial naturalic peptide. It's a hormone that makes you pee more than usual. Or oh, more urine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's one thing that happens. All right. So that would lead at least to a, 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 a long duration awakening of probably three minutes, maybe a lot longer than that. So that would be a substantial break. Okay. What's, um, so how do you go about helping people that, uh, you know, that have snoring every night or, or have apnea? What are, like, what's your diagnostic uh, method? I know everyone's different, but, mm -hmm. you know, take me through what you, you typically do. Sure. Well, let's, let's say you came to see me in the office and you're complaining about snoring. Um, there's really nothing else besides the snoring that bothers your wife. Or, um, and so first thing is we have to look at your lifestyle and dietary factors. Number one, make sure you're not sleeping on your back. And this is a, a well-known concept that uh, you have to stay off your back because on your back is when everything falls back more due to gravity, um, especially when your muscles are relaxed. So um, there's these gadgets that you can get online. You know, um, I think in the old days, they used to say, use a tennis ball, throw it inside a sock and tie it to the back of your pajamas. But that doesn't work that well. So these, there are these gadgets you can purchase. I think two brand names I'm familiar with is... Um, anti-snore shirt and slumber bump. Um, and these are big, these are vests with big bumpers, inflatable bumpers on the back that keep you off your back. Um, but that works, you know, to various degrees. Some people, it's uncomfortable to sleep on the side. For example, your arms get numb, or you get backache. Um, but in general, you should stay off your back if possible. Uh, and then the other major issue that I always start with is make sure you're not eating close to bedtime. Um, and the reason for this is that, let's say you stop breathing just once in a while, may not be enough to be called sleep apnea, but the more stomach juices you have um, when you go to bed, the more it comes up when you stop breathing once in a while. So that causes you to not only wake up, but also causes inflammation in your throat, causing more obstruction. Oh, and then snoring, I've also heard, creates a, a vacuum or a negative pressure that can also pull stomach acid up out of the stomach into the throat as well. Yep. Well, snoring by itself, probably not, but you do create a vacuum effect. That's where you're making that sound. Um, but when you stop, so when you, when you stop snoring and you have an apnea, <laughs> that's when you create a tremendous vacuum effect, uh, which is known to cause your stomach juices to be suctioned up into your throat. So that, that's that reflux concept that Ooh. goes hand in hand with snoring and sleep apnea. That's where you should never go to bed on a, in a full stomach. All right. So again, a patient comes in, mm -hmm. they say, hey, doc, you know, my wife says I'm snoring like a freight train and Mm -hmm. I'm tired all the time, you know, so you'll, you'll ask if, what will you start quizzing them about their behaviors and things like that? Like, what, again, what's your method? Right. So make, making sure that they're not sitting on their backs, no eating late, um, making sure they're, um, they have good nasal breathing. Actually, a little bit of a side note, one of the, um, there's an article I, I read maybe about 15, 20 years ago that really piqued my interest in this area. Um, what they did was they took a bunch of snorers and what they did was they gave them a nasal decongestant 
I think it was Sudafed, one of those pills that didn't just the nose. They also gave them a medication called Domperidone, which is a medication to help to empty the stomach faster. They don't have it in this country anymore, um, but it, it just empties the stomach faster. So it get, I guess it gets rid of the gastric contents much faster. So the combination of the, the decongestant and the stomach emptying medication, I think it, it lowered the sleep apnea by like 89%, which is pretty shocking. So that's why the, the, the two most fundamental principles that I start with is make sure you're breathing well through your nose um, and empty your stomach before you go to bed. Now the nose is really, really important. Nasal congestion doesn't cause snoring and sleep apnea, but what happens is that if, you, if your nose is stubby, you're going to open your mouth more. And when you open your mouth, you think you're gonna get more air in, but what ends up happening is that the tongue rotates back and you cause more obstruction and you snore more. That's what people in these, in these movies, you see people snoring with their mouths open. Yeah, I've even seen it recently on a flight. A guy was sitting up and snoring. <laughs> uh-huh. I was like, oh my God, how do you do that? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, and again, people have various degrees of susceptibility, so if they're really bad, they're going to snore in any position. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. How do you? How is it possible to snore if you're laying on your side or if you're sitting up? Like, you know, if the, if, I guess it's not just with the tongue. That's probably right. why I was just fixated on the tongue. So if someone's sitting up or on their side, how do they? How come they still snore? What's going on? Okay. Because it's not just your tongue but the tongue interacts with the soft palate and the, the walls of the side of your throat where the tonsils you know, sit. Or, or the, even if you had your tonsils taken out, that the side wall where the tonsils used to be can still cave in from side to side. And the soft palate can cave in front to back or it can cave in like a purse string, like a round purse string. So depending on what stage you're at, some people may be more positional and some people may, it may not depend on position. And also, okay. what's, um, what stage of sleep you're in, different stages of sleep, you get different muscle relaxation levels. Interesting. And I, from what I've read, REM is the time where you're, uh, you're, everything relaxes the most. Is that right? Uh, completely. You have no muscle tone whatsoever when you're dreaming. So, what, I mean, could you take singing lessons to help strengthen your <laughs> yeah. throat? Could you yeah. play, you know, I've heard like playing the didgeridoo yep. helps. Like, uh, how do you strengthen yeah. your throat so it doesn't flap yeah. around? Okay. So, um, so, so we'll, we'll, let's, let's talk about that. So they've actually shown that, I think that this is about 10, 15 years ago, there were these studies coming out all at the same time, showing that playing the didgeridoo and also doing tongue exercises lowered the severity of sleep apnea by 50% on average, and the same thing as snoring. And so that kind of took off as, a, as an alternative complementary way of treating snoring and sleep apnea. Um, but, it's, it's been kind of disappointing because even if it works, you just, people just can't keep it up. It's very intensive. Um, and also, you know, storing is not one of these black and white issues. It's on this continuum. And so what may work for some people may not work for others to various degrees. Um, and so it depends on who you end up speaking to or what you read on the internet. <laughs> You'll find different ways of addressing storing um, and tongue exercises, singing, did you do these all um, ways of toning the throat muscles? And that helps to various degrees. But again, if you're further up on that continuum, it's not going to work as much. So um, in general, I, I do recommend starting with it because it's, it's, it's not invasive and you can get access to it pretty easily. Um, but at a certain point, most people will probably need a little bit more intensive um, intervention as opposed to just conservative exercises. Um, along those lines, even acupuncture has been found to lower severe sleep apnea by 50% on average. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I guess we don't need to get into the mechanisms of acupuncture. It's <laughs> no. all over the field. But... Uh, no, right. 
Well, I want to return briefly back to the stuffy nose syndrome. That I, yes. I found is a huge, like for myself, if my nose is mm-hmm. stuffed up, my sleep's going to be horrible. Exactly. It, it feels to me like it's a backup. Mm-hmm. I guess also it, it, if your nose is clear, it's, you're less likely maybe to develop vacuum. But if my nose is stuffed up, it just feels like I have no backup. You know, like when you when your nose is stuffed up and you eat, sometimes you have to go and take a yeah, breath uh-huh. before you eat food mm-hmm. and hold your breath while you're eating, essentially, because you can't breathe. But but during sleep, like I said, I've, I've noticed it's just awful. So clearing your nose, like, had, mm-hmm. I don't know, like I've tried Breathe Right strips. I've tried those nose cone things, but mm-hmm. sometimes my nose literally is just swollen. You know, nothing, you blow your nose, nothing comes out like it. Mm-hmm. Are there, is there anyone out there that's big on how to clear your nose? Well, unfortunately, um, well, some people do find with nasal saline or combination nasal saline and breathe right trips or cones, or some people use allergy medications or even have to use with the digestants. But pretty much 99% of the time when I see patients with snoring and sleep apnea, they have anatomic reasons why uh, their nose is stuffy. So for example, um, and this goes back to the, to the book where I talk about how um, most modern humans have these small mouths because of changing their diets. And when your mouth is small, it crowds the airway. Uh, so your soft, tough, soft palate and tongue take up too much space. So it, it, if not, when it relaxes, you obstruct much easier. But when you have a na- narrow mouth, it causes the hard palate not to drop down. So you have what's called a high arched hard palate. And so inside the nose, if your septum, the middle of your nose, the septum as it grows downwards, if, if the floor of your nose doesn't drop during development, the septum buckles to one side. So that's called the deviated septum. Mm. And on top of that, the, the sidewalls of your nose follows your upper molars. So if the upper molars aren't widened, then the sidewalls are more narrow. On top of that, you have this crooked septum. Uh, and then lastly, your turbinates, these are these wings on the sidewalls of your nose, help to smooth more and humidify air. Those become more irritable and become more congested. And it can be, for example, it can be swollen due to allergies or weather changes. So, and then lastly, um, because the you nose know, is more narrow to begin with, you create this vacuum effect so your nostrils cave in. So it's like a, it's a perfect storm <laughs> causing nasal congestion due to all these factors. And then, like I said before, when you open your mouth, and I, and I, can, see, I can actually see this during endoscopy when people are sleeping and I take a look at the camera in the throat. The more you open your mouth, the more your tongue and soft palate go backwards. Oh, so just the act of opening your mouth. Mm-hmm. Let's say I'm opening it now. So that mm-hmm. causes your tongue... Oh, I don't I, So opening your mouth causes your tongue when you relax to go backwards and your soft palate to what? To goes, also goes close back, it? Back. Yeah, yes, goes back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's oh. why a lot of people, um, when they're in the dentist chair and they have the mouth open, it's hard to breathe. Oh, okay. Because all your tissues are obstructing <laughs> you. Huh, interesting. Right. And, and you're laying on your back too, right? Yep. Well, almost. Yeah. You're laying in this like uh-huh. way reclined position with the light right. shining in your eyes and it's horrible. Yep. You know? Yeah. <laughs> So all right, so what? So you mentioned very briefly, you'll you'll actually take a scope and look in someone's nose and in their mouth and throat. Yeah, when so when I would you that, do that? Um, I usually I'll do it in the office when you're awake, and I can do that sitting up or laying flat. And when it's really obvious, you know what the problem is. But um, so, some people um, things don't obstruct unless you're sleeping. Um, but in general, the first thing to do after addressing the nose and the lifestyle lifestyle dietary habits is to um, is to do a sleep test to see where you are on this continuum, whether or not you have sleep apnea. And so that determines what pathway you go in terms of the treatment options. So if someone goes, right, and they have apnea, fine. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I've covered that a lot, but what if they go and, you know, they only stop breathing for five seconds, 10 times an hour, and they right. don't have what the lab would call apnea, but obviously they're having problems. And then they come back to you, they say, all right, at the park, I did it. The lab says I don't have apnea, but you read the results and you're like, all right, they still have a problem. Then what? That's a very common situation. So now you're in this range of snoring, but a lot of people who snore can still be very symptomatic, very tired, sleepy, you know, headaches, anxiety, those kind of things. That's called upper airway resistance syndrome or UARS, where you're symptomatic, but you don't have sleep apnea. So in that situation, I, I, I kind of treat it just like sleep apnea because it's purely anatomical. If you have weight to lose, that's the first thing to do. But a lot of people have trouble losing weight because they're not sleeping. Uh, physiologically, it's challenging to lose weight if you don't sleep well, because hormonally and metabolically, it just, it just promotes weight gain. Um, so then you have the standard treatment options like um, uh, not sleeping on your back. Um, you have the, um, over-the-counter, you have these options like these nose, nose cones and gadgets they put inside your nose. You also have these boil-and-bite mandibular advancement devices or tongue-retaining devices, all these gadgets you can get online. And they all work to various degrees. Um, but if you wanted a formal way of treating this, um, the, the two options are you can, you can actually try CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure, but it's not going to cover, it won't be covered by insurance because you don't have sleep apnea. The other way to go um, that works pretty well is, is, a, is a formal mandibular advancement device that's made by a dentist. So this is a device that's custom made um, by a dentist where the bottom plate, it's upper and lower plates and the bottom plate uh, pulls forward and that pulls your tongue forward. So some people, actually many people who, with, who snore or have mild to moderate sleep apnea may be good candidates for this. Uh, but again, there's many different factors determine whether or not you can respond or not respond. Uh, for example, if you're very overweight, it doesn't work as well. Um, if you have very severe sleep apnea, it doesn't work as well. And, and they also have- Okay, so- long -term, yeah. Go ahead. Right, so you have these oral advancement devices, but what, what else can you do? I mean, what if, you know, surgery seems like a big, well, huge issue. I mean, what, yeah. what else can be done? Okay. Um, a lot of people also have uh, severe dental crowding. And so I, if, if that's the case, I recommend getting that treated so they can see a dentist for palatal expansion and all these appliances to make your mouth bigger. Um, so basically, um, this, is not, this is not just a, a, an annoying snoring problem. It's an anatomic issue. Your, your jaws are small. The soft tissues are taking up too much space. So either you have to make your jaws bigger, move the lower jaw forward, or trim the soft tissues or stiffen it. Um, and now in the art field in ENT, uh, we have various ways of modifying the soft palate. So for example, you can put in implants that help to stiffen the soft palate. Uh, that's called a pillar procedure. Um, you can also use radio frequency energy or lasers to, to stiffen the soft palate. Um, you can trim the uvula. You can, um, what else? You can, um, oh, you can even scar it with uh, a chemical. It's called injection sorplasty. So there are different ways of stiffening the soft palate, but again, it, it, just, it just kind of literally covers it up. It doesn't really treat what's causing it. And usually with, you know, within a couple of months, a couple of years, the, the snoring comes back. Oh, so even after surgery, it would come back? Well, um, the more aggressive the surgery, the less likely it's gonna come back, but it, it, there's still a high chance. What would because surgery do? I mean, would it, it, does it do you ablate tissues? Like what, you know, it sounds, Terrible, but what, what happens literally in surgery? Well, you have the, the, the very minimal procedures where you just um, give a shot in the soft palate 
using a, a chemical that, that's used for varicose veins. So that creating a big, like a one inch wide ulcer in front of the soft palate. So as a heel, it's a stiffens if the soft palate so it doesn't vibrate. Um, then you have, you know, using instruments like lasers or radio frequency energy to stiffen the, the muscles underneath. Um, then you have the cutting options where you can cut the uvula or make modifications in the office. And then you go into the realm of sedamia surgery, which is more done in the operating room. But there's literally probably dozens of different, different ways of addressing swelling and sedamia. And um, it, it's, it's, it's really challenging. Well, uh, if it's not necessarily pure apnea, but it's UARS, this mm -hmm. upper airway resistance syndrome, again, what is your preferred sequence of treatments for someone and how, you know, how successful can you be? Yeah. Yeah. I have no preference. Everything is customized. Uh, based on the patient's um, you know, tooth status, their insurance issue, situation, their uh, weight issues, uh, do they have other nasal issues to deal with? Um, there's really no one one option that, that works for everybody. Um, and some people, especially in our field, we do a lot of these um, out-of-pocket procedures for snoring. Um, I don't do that as much anymore because what I'm finding is that long-term, it just, it just comes back. Because again, you're not, you're not addressing major cause which is that small mouth so as long as you have a small mouth whatever you do it's not going to work that well in the long term it's, i know it's a little bit depressing <laughs> but um yeah well there's got to be yeah. something you can yeah. do what do you so what if someone has a small mouth i mean can they do like a power expander or, or yeah. spreader even as an adult like what can they do yeah you can absolutely um so my general answer is uh, it's not a matter of a versus b versus c it's a plus b plus c the more you do and later on, the better the results you get long-term. So I, mean, I can, I can sit in the palate, but if they have a narrow jaw, then I would send to a dentist as well for the palate expansion. Um, if they have a nasal congestion, I would treat that medically or surgically. Um, and then you know, work on the dietary lifestyle modifications to lose weight if they have weight to lose. Um, so it's a multifactorial approach to snoring. It's not just a simple procedure that you get, that get done in the office. But what if you're you know, a skinny lady and you just don't have large features in general. Everything about you is smaller, mm -hmm. and you have these problems. Like, what do you do then? Well, typically, I mean, I see a lot of these skinny people. They're young and healthy looking, but it's not just that the body's skinny, but the mouth is skinny. So again, it, it, it has to do with a small mouth with dental crowding. Many people will have um, wisdom teeth that won't, won't erupt or have it taken out. Um, some people have had um, eight total teeth extractions, for example. You know, for braces, they'll get four bicuspid extractions and then four more wisdom teeth later on. So they have eight out of 32 teeth that are gone. So that's going to make the mouth even smaller. And Jeez. what they've shown is that the more teeth you remove, the higher the risk of sleep apnea later on. Um, and so you have a lot of different factors that contribute. Your genes, for example, what you get from your parents. So you get your parents' anatomy. And then you have uh, your um, various factors that when you're developing growing up that affects how big your mouth gets. So that's what I talk about in my book, how, for example, bottle feeding, thumb sucking, pacifier use, nasal congestion, are all risk factors for malocclusion or dental crowding. But dental crowding also means airway crowding and nasal crowding. Yeah, I guess if you, the more hard teeth you're taking out, mm -hmm. the more of your mouth is left as soft tissue, except well, for the what, existing bone. So maybe that's right. why it would collapse more, right? Actually, the, the bones resorb, they get smaller. The jaws retract. Really? So if yep. you take teeth out, your bones... I guess your bone retracts because it's not needed for the tooth. Right. Wow. You see people who have had these extractions, when the profile, it gets, it gets more pushed in. Huh. 
It makes sense, but I didn't realize that. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, and for now in those severe cases, I even recommend jaw surgery once in a while because that that's that's the best way of getting a good result. Um, all these other options, it can help, and I, I do recommend trying it at these appliances. Uh, it, 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 for many people, it's, it's a good option, but for the really severe patients, um, sometimes you have to just do what's necessary. Um, it may sound aggressive, but you, you get much better results that way. Unfortunately, most people are very resistant to jaw surgery. Yeah, it sounds incredibly invasive. Huh. Yeah, yeah, it, it's not an easy answer um, because there's so many different variations of people who have snoring, and, and they may or may not have sleep apnea and other medical conditions. Um, and so what I'm finding is that the more I practice this area of sleep medicine, the more layers I'm adding on. It's not a think, one, yeah, one shot fits all. Right. It sounds like a multi-layered approach. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So what, what are examples of like the toughest cases that you've, you've had? Um, I think the toughest ones are the ones who have had those multiple dental extractions. Um, and many of them, won't have sleep apnea. And the reason is, again, when they obstruct, they, would, they just wake up too quickly. And so they're told they don't have sleep apnea, but they're miserable. They're tired and fatigued. They can't function. They can't think straight. They have digestive issues, anxiety, depression. Um, and they're told they can't find anything wrong. And then they get tested for you know, Lyme disease or Epstein-Barr virus or other metabolic problems or anemia. And they go through all the treatment and that doesn't work. And what I end up doing is I end up doing what's called drug-induced sleep endoscopy. This is where I uh, put people under anesthesia, just using a profile drip, like for a colonoscopy, and I take a look at the camera. And what we see is that most of these people have severe obstruction in the throat, where, where um, it could be in the palate, soft palate, the, uh, the tongue, or the epiglottis, which is this cartilaginous hood on top of your voice box. Um, actually, we, we, we published a paper a couple of years ago looking at people who don't ha officially have sleep apnea, where the HI, the sleep study number is less than five, and on the drug the sleep endoscopy, 83% had significant multi-level obstruction. Wow. So you can tell because they're in this, uh, essentially this sleep state where everything's mm -hmm. relaxed and you can see right. when the collapses are happening. Right, with each breath in, they collapse. Jeez. Is there any way you can target certain tissues to be worked on? you know, or remodeled with surgery instead of like, yeah. you know, what can you do? Yeah, that, that's a long discussion I have with the patients afterwards. There's certain things that are more amenable to surgery. For example, if you're a young child or a young adult and you have large tonsils, so those tend to work the best to treat this problem. But again, that alone long-term doesn't help completely because what got you to have the large tonsils is your small airway. But remember, um, every time you stop breathing, you vacuum up your stomach juice. And that's what causes your tonsils to get bigger, causing more obstruction. Oh, why? Because the acid irritates them? Right, at the stomach juices. Would you, um, you know, I've, I, I, I'm sure we've all felt like we're, ugh, you know, we feel acid in our throat. Mm -hmm. um, but do people know that there's acid in their throat? In most cases, no. Uh, really? Most of the time, it's, it's silent reflux. Um, and the other problem with this acid reflux business is that you know, a lot of, I bet you millions of people are taking these um, acid reflux medications to treat heartburn or gastritis or whatever. And the problem is that these acid reflux medications do nothing for reflux. What it does instead is it lowers acid secretion, but it doesn't prevent it from coming up. So what's coming up is less acidic, but it still has bile, enzymes, and bacteria, right? 
Um, and they actually found pepsin, which is a digestive enzyme in sinus, ear, and lung infection fluid. So we know it goes up and down the passageways, causing inflammation. Huh. Interesting. But if someone um, you know, doesn't eat three hours or four hours before bed, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they're pretty good in that department, they still can have acid reflux, or is it Absolutely. much yeah. less likely? Well, whatever comes up is not is, um, high in volume or is as much um, content. But it's, it's, you still make juices even when you're having a stomach, so it's going to come up microscopically. And even if it doesn't come up, you still stop breathing, right? <laughs> and so that yeah. has consequences too. I guess maybe then changing the angle at which you're sleeping. If you sleep on a wedge or if you, you know, I guess if you have to, maybe you sleep in a, a recliner so you're at a much higher angle. Maybe that would, you know, gravity would help as an assist to prevent the stomach yeah. acid from coming up okay. as much. So that all does help, but then no matter what position you're in, these vacuum forces are tremendous. It'll come up no matter what position you're in. Depending on some people, you know, I can even argue that um, these forces are so great that you can even suction up your stomach into your chest cavity. So that's called a hyperhernia. Uh, <laughs> I guess the, yeah, the need to breathe is paramount. It overrides yeah, everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huh. yeah. Um, and so those ideas are really great. The positioning is really good. Um, wedges, pillows. Um, they all, like I said, they all help to various degrees. And it works better the more milder the symptoms you have. But the more severe the sebapnea, the less likely it's going to work. Um, but, you know, in some people, they have what's called positional, positional sleep apnea, where um, the number of events is less than 50% on your side versus on your back. So there's a big difference between your back and side. So that's right. why I say, um, in general, just stay off your back. But again, even if you do sleep on your side, you can still obstruct, but not, not, but not come up as an apnea. Just lesser degrees I of obstruction. What about the, uh, the symptom? The symptomology. Um, if someone doesn't have sleep apnea, but they, you know, they're having hypopnic events, or you know, mm -hmm. their they're, their breathing's compromised, can you at least get them to a threshold where they won't be symptomatic anymore? They won't feel like well during the day. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you at least get them if you push them, you know, down the continuum twenty percent mm -hmm. or something? Mm -hmm. Is that enough to get people over the threshold, or or no? Yeah. So everyone has a different threshold. And so that's why you start with the basics first. So not eating late, optimizing the breathing, sleep position, uh, neck position, and that can be controlled with pillows. That's the other thing. Um, neck position is really important. Um, a lot of people who have sleeping problems, they tend to tilt the head back and that'll open up the airway. And they, they still struggle to breathe, but it helps them. It's better than sleeping with the head cocked forward. So that's how these, um, these super big neck and lower at the head, so it kind of pushes your um, head back, so the airway opens up somewhat. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, we're just about out of time. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got a lot of, you know, more advanced concepts, I'd say, and more ways for someone to help themselves. Um, what's the best way of people? You're in you're in Bronx, New York, or where are you located? Uh, yeah, I'm in the Bronx. Okay, so you you. I guess you can see patients from the five boroughs and, you know, um, so for people that yeah. are local to you uh -huh. Uh -huh. or can you see non-local people? I mean, what, you know, uh, how do people get in contact with you in your office to find out more, you know, uh, sounds like they should definitely get your book. They're experiencing any problems for sure. So sure. I know that's on Amazon and everything, but how do they, uh, how do they get in contact if they want to see you or your office? Well, I think honestly, um, 
practically speaking, I have a six month wait to see me right now. My, my, my goal is not to get patients come to see me because I wrote that book to try to help patients to be able to help themselves and see the right people. So for, for routine run-of-the-mill sleep apnea or snoring, they can see an ENT locally or see a sleep doctor um, and get plugged into that, that system where they are, already are. They don't, they don't have to come to see me. Um, I, mean, I, get, I usually get only the, the worst case scenario where people have tried everything and nothing works. Um, and even, even those people are very challenging. Uh, but if you're starting out you know, from scratch and you want to get your snoring taken care of, um, then you know, first of all, see a sleep doctor, get a sleep study. Um, I think seeing a dentist is also a good idea. A lot of dentists are making these mandibular advancement devices these days. Um, for some people, just losing five or 10 pounds can make all the difference too. So um, there's a lot of different ways that you can handle this before you come to see a doctor formally. Mm. Okay. Uh, last question then is, all right, so if I'm in, you know, I know California and I'm searching, mm-hmm. how do I know I don't just have some schmuck and I have a good one that knows mm-hmm. what you know and, you know, is aware of, of more than just, you know, one or two fixes for things? How do I find, you know, clones of you around the country? <laughs> what should I look for? I keep getting that question over and over again. Um, I think, so my recommendation is educate yourself first and you should know what's available out there. I mean, there's so much information on the, on the internet and, and starting with my book, but by doing the research on your own, you should be able to know what the general options are available. Um, and then you have to kind of seek out the doctors. Um, they may not be able to do everything and not every doctor is going to know about everything, but seek out the doctors that, um, they're knowledgeable in one area. So for example, there are lots of dentists that do this really, really well. And there are dentists that don't do it well. Um, but usually if you go through a sleep lab, the sleep doctor will work with a, a dentist that does this on a regular basis. So they'll send you to someone that, that's good at doing it. Um, I would also don't, if you have sleep apnea, don't discount CPAP just because it sounds like it's gonna be torture using it. Um, have an open mind and try different things because you don't know what's gonna work. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Steve, thanks so much for coming. I mean, if you get a six-month wait, you get a, you're a super busy guy. So I appreciate you making the time for me and the listeners. And, uh, you know, again, thanks for coming back. Sure, my pleasure. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues where we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.